0: Hey, everyone, just want to let you know that our team is taking a much needed break this month. But before we left, we put aside some really great bonus episodes for you. So later this week, be on the lookout for my conversation with Rashad Robinson, civil rights leader and president of Color of Change. Rashad and I spoke a few months ago at our virtual How I Built This Summit, and he shared some really powerful insights about how to make an impact in the world right now. And we're going to be putting that episode into your feed this Thursday. For today's show, we're going to reach back into the archives to bring you my conversation with Roxanne Quimby of Burt's Bees, which first ran back in 2019. Here you go. We
1: had a a great artist, and he did a woodcut portrait of Burt, and we started putting that on the package. And that was a very conscious decision to use Burt's face He had a long gray beard and long gray curly hair. You know, and as a woman who could never measure up (laughs) to this glamorous image in mainstream cosmetics and beauty products, you know, I felt like we're going to put a picture of a guy that everybody is going to (laughs) feel more beautiful than.
0: From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how Roxanne Quimby took a roadside honey stand in rural Maine and turned it into Burt's Bees, one of the biggest natural personal care brands in America. Every Sunday at my local farmer's market, there are people who sell homemade hot sauce and handcrafted wallets. There's, there's even a woman who sells mohair scarves using the mohair from her Angora goats. Now, imagine going to your local farmer's market in, say, Maine, back in the mid-1980s. And if you happen to be near Bangor you might have come across Roxanne Quimby and Bert Shabitz selling jars of honey. Honey from Bert's own beehives. Charming, right? Maybe you'd buy a jar and move on. Bert and Roxanne would keep on doing what they were doing. You'd do what you were doing. Except Roxanne thought, hey, could we make and sell candles from all the beeswax we have? Or could we use the beeswax to make other stuff? Okay, so you can kind of figure out where this is headed, because that, of course, is what happened. And even though Roxanne and Bert never intended to build a billion-dollar brand, or even a million-dollar brand, it just happened. Of course, a lot of that had to do with Roxanne's passion and drive, but the idea was never to build something massive—it was a farmer's market product. Today, walk into any drugstore in the U.S. or even overseas, and you will find an impressive display of Burt's Bees products. The likelihood that Roxanne Quimby would build a massive company, or any company at all, was so implausible back in the early 1980s when she was a single mom waiting tables at a diner. And a decade before that, she drove across the country from Massachusetts, where she was from, to San Francisco, seeking out a simpler life, a life without lots of material needs.
1: It was an adventure to go all the way to the West Coast from New England and New York. It was a great unknown, and I had always wanted to be an artist from the time I was five, so it seemed like a natural place to go to art school.
0: Hmm. I guess you got there in, what, like 1970, around then?
1: Mm-hmm. I crossed a great cultural bridge while I was out there. Hmm. Well,
0: what do you mean by that?
1: Um, I learned to think differently and to probe more deeply. And I think that the material world was too important and really It's not as important as I was taught that it was. We were encouraged to make a good living. Both of my sisters had MBAs like my dad did, and one's achievements were emphasized. And I took a turn (laughs) to the extreme left when I went to art school and rejected the pursuit of material comforts it was really quite wonderful
0: and what did you think did you think i don't need that life i want a different life what was what did you start to think about the life you wanted to have
1: well i i wanted meaning and i wanted to live deeply i was very influenced by thoreau who wrote about it quite beautifully i was looking for transcendence I just, my world just got bigger, and I felt my relationship with it expanded.
0: Um, I I guess you had a boyfriend in San Francisco at the time, and the two of you decided to, like, go off around the country to find a place to live? Yep. And, and this is George St. Clair, your boyfriend at the time? Mm-hmm. And so what did you guys do? You just, uh, y- you took off, you left San Francisco? Yep,
1: got it. <laughs> Got a van, fixed it up. We had three thousand dollars. We went to Vermont, and the Vermont realtor that we spoke with said that you couldn't buy any land in Vermont for three thousand dollars. But try Maine. So we went to Maine.
0: (laughs) So, so your intention was to go somewhere in the country with three thousand dollars and see what kind of land, like how much land you could buy. Yes. And why did you want to do that? What were you going to do on the land?
1: There was a movement at the time, the Back to the Land movement, and those were people that had left city life and were just like us. I was doing it to kind of strip away everything that civilization had layered on me and see what was really important. So the land that we bought, we built a little cabin on it and had no running water, no electricity. And so you quickly became more aware of how those things affected your life when you didn't
0: have them. <laughs> so you had 3000 bucks, And how much land did that buy you? Like how many acres? 30. That's a lot. Yeah. And how did you know what, what, what to do?
1: Well, there were a few books that mm. you could read about how to build a simple house. And we would pick people's brains who knew more than we did. They were glad to see some young people moving to Maine because we've had quite an exodus of young people. So they were uh, very friendly and helpful.
0: Did you build a, a cabin? Did you build like a house on this land?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: How long did it take? So I'm assuming this is – you get there in the summer. This is like seventy, nineteen seventy-five 1975 or so, something like that? Yep. And then how long before you're actually living in a a place with a roof over your head? <laughs>
1: Oh, it was way too long. We had built a little screen house where we were sleeping, which was a little ways away from the house we were building. It was getting into December, and we were still sleeping outside. Basically, it was outside. It was so hard to get out of bed in the morning out of the sleeping bag. But, you know, everything that could go wrong did go wrong.
0: (laughs) Did you have heat? We had a wood stove, yeah. Man, this is like this is like pre-global warming Maine in, in December. <laughs> this is cold. Yeah, it's extreme. But
1: there were others.
0: Yeah, you know we weren't the only ones. Huh. So you, you build a house and you like still no running water, electricity, or any of that stuff. But but you do have to eat. So how how are you making a living?
1: Well, the good thing about not having all the amenities is that it doesn't take a lot of money to live. Yeah, We had no bills, basically, other than food. We cut our own firewood and had a source of water, which was the spring, out and back. I waitressed a day or two a week, and Mm -hmm. George worked at the local radio station for a day a week. We were living on about $4,000 a year.
0: A year. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. You how long? I mean, you do this for a couple years, right? You guys are living like this for several years.
1: Yeah, I think uh, we probably lived out there like that for maybe seven years or so.
0: Wow! I and, and I guess that around like in the first few years, you you actually had children
1: <laughs> there too, <Yeah>. right?
0: <laughs> children who are still grown They're grown now, but they they were born in this like homesteader kind of house, them out in the middle of nowhere. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yep. They have very fond memories of it. We never had to argue about TV shows.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I'm just trying to get into your head at that time. Was that your vision for life that you were going – because it's kind of – there is something idyllic about it. I mean you're out there. You're far away from the rough and tumble of civilization and cities. Was that your vision for the way you were going to live your life?
1: I think it was a very idyllic kind of dream. Yeah. But ultimately – It didn't provide enough stimulation for my personality.
0: Hmm. Why? What what, was your personality need?
1: Well, I think I'm kind of a restless person, Hmm. pretty curious and interested in the way the world works, how it's all put together. So we were pretty cut off out there.
0: Hmm. So you guys are out there and – I guess your your marriage or, or partnership with George kind of was not in great shape because you guys you did separate at a certain point, right? We did. Yep.
1: Hannah and Lucas were six years old, and I moved out, hmm. and I moved into another cabin <laughs> that oh, wow. was even further off the road.
0: Wow, this is like eighty eighty two or something. Yeah, around that.
1: right in there, maybe eighty three.
0: Yeah. So you were a single mom, two kids, on your own. That's that's tough going.
1: Well, although I was a single mom, their dad was a single dad. And right. he definitely took a lot of responsibility for their care. And so every other week, I had the opportunity to go out and do what I needed to do or or whatever sure and were you happy at that time Um, probably not you know I don't think about being happy that much Hmm. I, I feel I think more about being fulfilled yeah
0: and were you did you feel fulfilled at that time
1: I did yeah I felt like I was making it on my own by you know living by my wits so to speak yeah and I liked that. And I liked the unknown. It was an adventure. It was sort of like fishing. You never knew what you were going to come up with. And that was
0: always fun. Yeah. So you are in northern, sort of northern central Maine. And um, how did you come across Bert Chavitz?
1: Well, he was, he was well known in the neighborhood because he was so unusual. What do you mean? Um, well... I mean,
0: you were unusual at the time, too, right?
1: Yes, but he was probably more unusual. <laughs> okay, yeah.
0: So, so what do you mean, like, um, what do you mean when you say unusual?
1: Well, he he looked like an old rabbi in huh. a way. He had a long gray beard and long gray curly hair, and he was a bachelor and sold honey on the side of the road off the back of his pickup truck. Hmm.
0: And you just knew Bert through the community. You weren't, or 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 did or did you meet him on one particular day?
1: Well, I did meet him personally when he picked me up hitchhiking because I didn't have a car at the time. Yeah. So I got to meet him, but I think I was vaguely aware of him just because he was one of the fixtures
0: in the area. And he would sell honey from bees that he raised, right? That he would keep.
1: Hmm. And he lived the same way, no phone, no electricity, hmm. in a little tiny cabin that he had hauled over to his property. And it was a turkey coop. Hmm. He was quite proud of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he
0: very, very eccentric, um, hermit type yeah. of fellow. But there must have been some kind of connection that you forged because. You, I guess you decided to, I don't know, work with him.
1: Yeah. Oh, I was very attracted to him. He was kind of an um, inspiration for how one could live very independently. And I was very inspired by his lifestyle. So how did you broach the idea of of
0: working with him?
1: I asked him if he wanted any help with the bees. Selling honey or no actually tending to the bees okay so uh, i followed him around for a summer as an apprentice and did a lot of the heavy work hauling supers of honey around extracting i learned all about the bees and i got to work with bert what was what was he like was he talkative was he quiet yeah he didn't say much <laughs> <laughs> he was pretty quiet and yeah. he was
0: about uh, 15 years older than you i guess at that point mm-hmm. right yeah he was about 50 at the time and you just this guy was just fascinating like he was living this life that you wanted to kind of model your own life on
1: Yep. he was very inspiring to me and it you know it was all kind of mixed up with the bees and nature as well it was in, all inseparable <laughs>
0: I'm trying to understand, like, when you were you were just really curious about bees, about his lifestyle, and him, you liked him, he was interesting, but there was no spark in your mind of, hey, maybe we can turn this into a business.
1: Yeah, after the summer where I apprenticed with him, I suggested that we could package the honey in nicer containers and sell it at craft fairs. Put little labels on them. How was he selling the honey? Well, he was selling them in used gallon jars. <laughs> <You know. laughs> Who is going to that... buy a gallon of honey?
0: <laughs> I know.
1: Bert. You know, like th- that pickles and relish come in <laughs> in <laughs> the restaurant business.
0: Yeah. Yes. So you're you're saying to him, Bert, let's put put it in smaller, nicer jars and see if we can sell it at like farmer's markets and stuff? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, and and he liked that idea.
1: Yeah, he he was fine with it. So I ordered some little plastic honey bears, the uh, little squeezy bears. Sure. Yeah, and we filled those up. Those were twelve ounces of honey instead of twelve pounds, yeah. which is how he sold it.
0: And did you have a, a like put a label on it and stuff?
1: Yeah, you know we used pictures of bees and tried to make all these products giftable.
0: This was, I guess, in like around 86, 85, 86. -hmm. And and did you market – like today you can imagine going to a craft fair and saying this is artisanal, handmade, organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, (laughs) free-range, fair trade, honey from – you know, that Bert takes like with his hands. Like were you marketing it that or was this like a bear with honey in it? It was like honey for sale.
1: Well, we did our best, I would say. We tried to make the packaging really cute, that people would want to buy it. Um, and, you know, honey is a pretty pure product. You sure. don't have to sell that too much.
0: I think we called it pure Maine honey. Yeah, and, and so you would start to sell it where?
1: Uh, we would do Christmas craft fairs at the local high schools and junior highs and, and right around the area.
0: You were just selling it at these little—and and were people buying the honey? How, how were sales? Good. Good, like thousands, tens of thousands, a few hundred. No. <laughs> not that good. Um, I remember a really
1: good show at the local junior high where it was $200 was the take of the day. And that was a lot of money to me.
0: Hmm. How did you guys then go from selling honey to making candles.
1: Well, when you extract the honey out of the honeycomb, it's capped over with beeswax. The bees kind of cap it so it doesn't drain out. Mm. So you have to uncap it and you're cutting off the beeswax cappings. So that's your beeswax.
0: Can I ask you a question about beeswax? Mm -hmm. It's wax. It's like really waxy, soft stuff that you can put a wick in and burn it. How Mm -hmm. do bees, I'm just curious, how do they... How do they produce it? They have glands on their
1: abdomen, just like we have saliva glands. Sure. So their glands produce flat discs of beeswax, which they then build into their honeycomb.
0: So when you pull out like one of those sheets of a, of a, in, a, in a hive of honeycomb, how do you get the wax off?
1: You have a hot knife mm-hmm. and you uncap it with the hot oh. knife. Oh, And the beeswax that was capping the honeycomb becomes available to do whatever you want with it.
0: So you had all this wax, and is it pretty easy to just melt it down and turn it into candles?
1: It's simple. I don't know if it's easy. We had many disasters, but it is a simple process. You just heat it up, and the beeswax separates from the honey and Mm -hmm. floats on top.
0: So you so you start making candles and then and then doing the same thing, bringing them to craft shows and selling them. Yep. And at this point, did you think, I don't know if, if if a friend asked you, "So Roxanne, what are you up to?" Would you have said, "Yes, I'm. I'm really getting into this bee thing. Like we're selling honey, and and now we're selling candles. And it's it's. I, I think this is there's something there."
1: Yeah, I think I would say that. Hmm. It was pretty exciting because I was maintaining my independence, using my sense of aesthetics, and making enough money to live on.
0: Yeah. Roughly, you know, by like 1988 or 89, like how many candles were you selling a year?
1: Well, I I don't remember exactly how our sales went in the 80s. But we were growing every year. My original goal was $20,000 in sales. And then when that goal was achieved, then I set another goal of 000, 000 a million sa- dollars in sales wow. by the time my kids graduated from high school.
0: Hmm. I read that you guys got a pretty big break in 1989. There was a boutique in New York called Zona. And they uh, came across your candles at a a trade show and then ordered hundreds of them? Yeah. Yeah. How did they find out about you guys?
1: The owner or one of his buying team Mm. must have come across us at a show somewhere. And he ordered our little teddy bear candle. It was a little molded candle in the shape of a teddy bear with a plaid bow tie under his chin And he sold hundreds of them.
0: How did you fulfill those orders? It was you and Bird, and like, how did you, what'd you do?
1: Just worked all the time. And we started to hire people Hmm. slowly. Some of the local ladies would come in and give us a hand, but we were still in a building that was not really a place you'd want to have employees work.
0: You were not doing this in Burt's Turkey Coop. You were actually you actually <laughs> rented out a building to make the candles.
1: Yeah, it was an old one-room schoolhouse. Right. And what did you guys call the business? Well, he had kind of a stencil that he had painted onto every beehive that said Burt's Bees, because the bees were all over the countryside. You know, You couldn't keep them too close together. So... We would have maybe 10 hives in a bee yard and maybe 5, 10 miles away there would be another bee yard with 5 or 10 hives of bees. And on the hives, he would stencil his name. So eventually it became Burt's Bees.
0: By the way, how did you have so much wax? Did you have to add beehives or at a certain point did you have to buy wax?
1: Yeah, we had to start buying it. We had 50 hives, which was fine for a few years, and then we didn't produce enough ourselves, so we ended up buying other people's
0: beeswax. Around 1989, when you got this big order from this New York boutique, you had to hire an accountant, and it was a 14-year-old high school boy who became your accountant. <laughs> is, that, is that true?
1: Yeah, we called the school, and we told them we needed someone good in math. And so they said oh, we have just the fellow, he's on the math team. So he came (laughs) over after school. You know, he would pay the bills and he would do the payroll and he would make the deposit. And the day that he had to make the deposit, walk up to the bank, he would wear a suit. (laughs) It was very important to maintain our dignity at the bank so he was our accountant. I would say he was more of a bookkeeper, but um, it's very serious and focused and responsible. Yeah, I mean,
0: Roxanne, it sounds like you were actually pretty serious and focused about this, that that actually you and Bert didn't just stumble into this company, but as you saw it take off and as you saw people show interest in what you were selling, you were making strategic decisions to kind of lay the foundation for what would become a business?
1: Yeah, it was we were learning a lot. Hmm. Neither one of us had been involved in running and managing a business. So everything was trial and error, a lot of experimentation, a lot of fails. We went to the school of hard knocks.
0: Yeah. What what was what was the biggest disaster that you can remember early on?
1: Well, I remember five gallons of a product we called boot food, which was a liquid combination of melted beeswax, Neat's foot oil, and bear grease.
0: Wait, what's bear grease?
1: Just the fat, the rendered fat of a bear.
0: Wow. <laughs> what do you do with that? that product that you just described?
1: You rub it into your leather boots to waterproof them. Wow. Keep the leather supple.
0: Okay. And you were selling this? Not very well. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it smelled
0: horrible. Oh, my God.
1: I know. It was just so bad. Um, yeah. And what happened to this? It, it spilled all over the floor. Five gallons of the Ooh. greasiest, smelliest, most horrible stuff all over the floor. That was a pretty big... Plus the waste. I mean, we were selling it and couldn't
0: then. Given your characterization of Bert as this kind of really independent, back-to-the-land kind of guy, what did he think about this growing enterprise? I mean, all of a sudden, it's starting to look like a business. I mean, and, and and not just Bert and Roxanne selling jars of honey and wax candles, but like New York boutiques ordering this stuff.
1: I think that he probably wasn't as happy about it as I was. He had no use for – any changes to his lifestyle. He didn't yeah. have children, for one yeah, thing. Right. And I'm far more ambitious than he was. Yeah. But he went along with it because he could see how important it was to me. Hmm. Was Bert
0: fairly easy to work with, or was he like, uh, you know, stubborn and difficult?
1: He was a prickly kind of guy. You know, he wasn't all warm and fuzzy. Yeah. So. People, including myself, gave him kind of a wide berth. Hmm. We divided up the work. He would collect all the overdue bills, you know, overdue accounts receivables. And he was a fixer. When things broke down or needed maintenance, he was always willing to do that. And I was uh, very hands-on with the product development and getting the product made and shipped. So huh. we had different roles.
0: Yeah. Um, 1991, Burt's Bees hits a million and a half dollars in sales revenue. Do you remember that? Do you remember thinking, oh, my God, we are doing a million and a half dollars of revenue? Well,
1: I should have remembered it.
0: But but I guess it was just moving too fast.
1: Yeah. It was moving pretty quickly. And we were every day was another problem that just had to be solved on Mm -hmm. the fly without enough resources or time because we were in a hurry trying to fill orders. So I didn't have a lot of time to to think that I wasn't expecting this or just kind of had a tiger by the tail. Yeah. And I was hanging on for dear life.
0: When we come back, how Roxanne and Bert's personal relationship started to unravel just as the company started to take off. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR.
1: Maddie Safaya here, host of Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR, Listen for new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. All in about 10 minutes, every weekday. It's a great addition to your daily listening, whether you're a science nerd, or, you know, just a little science curious. Subscribe now to Shortwave from NPR.
0: Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. So... It's the early 1990s, and Burt's Bees has just hit a million and a half dollars in revenue. And one thing we did not mention in part one, which you may have figured out already, but Roxanne and Burt, they were kind of a thing. They weren't just business partners, but romantic partners as well. Now, at this time, 1990... Burt's Bees was selling mostly candles and other things made with beeswax, and they sold those things mainly at boutiques in and around New England and New York. But in 1991, Roxanne had an idea that would take the company in a brand new direction. You introduced a product that would go on to become one of your best-selling, if not your most famous product, your Burt's Bees lip balm. Mm-hmm. How'd you come up with that idea?
1: Well, we were making other products that were basically the same formula. We were making a furniture polish, which was wax and oil, and the boot food basically was wax and oil. And lip balm is basically wax and oil. And we put a couple of amenities in it, like vitamin E and and peppermint oil. But it was very clear that people were more interested in buying products for their skin and their lips and their face than they were buying products for their furniture and their shoes. So once that became clear, we phased out of all of the other polishes that we were trying to sell and started focusing on on skin. And we eventually stopped making candles as well.
0: You stopped making candles because... It wasn't profitable or it didn't make sense?
1: I think because it wasn't scalable. Hmm. And the skincare products, which were basically blending and filling, Mm -hmm. it was a very simple manufacturing process that could easily be scaled. And we were making handmade candles, so to go to an automated system just required a lot more time, machinery, and space, and investment, That I didn't feel would have the same return. Hmm. So we dropped the candles.
0: So we're now like in 1991, Burt's Bees is growing. You've hit a million and a half dollars and you're going in one direction and that's up. You were this counterculture art student. You were a homesteader. Living in a, you know, like in tents and stuff. But you were kind of starting to become this thing that maybe you kind of rejected. I'm not criticizing you at all. I'm just it's just interesting, right? That you kind of had rejected this whole world, but you had
1: a knack for it. I know it's ironic. I've thought about that. did you ever reflect on it at that time? I think I did. Yeah. Hmm. suddenly, money became so important. Not for what it would buy, but just because it was critical to the operation of the business. Yeah. Keeping track of it. And there I was keeping track of the cash flow, money in, money out, paying bills, sending bills. It was sort of a simple version of capitalism, which I had rejected
0: years ago. Yeah, but you were not a trained MBA or business Person, but obviously you have some intrinsic talent. I mean, you you understood this in a way that you could see what Burt's bees could be, and you were just doing it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I had role models. I had selected out companies that uh, you know I kept them in my mind hmm. as an ideal. So I had examples. Like like what? I had a big sign over the production floor that said. Look out, Elizabeth Arden. Wow. And, you know, I really felt like if, if Elizabeth could do it, so could
0: we. Yeah. So you guys are growing. You're hiring. Are you overwhelmed? I mean, how many people did you have to hire in Maine to just keep the engines going? We had about forty-five. It's a lot of people to sort of oversee. Yeah, was that hard? Did you? I mean, because at this point, I guess you're like a CEO or a de facto CEO, if not the official mm-hmm. CEO.
1: I would say that was the most challenging part of the job mm. was managing people.
0: Are you? Do you see yourself as a people person?
1: Not that much. No, mm. I can mm. be. Yeah, if I have to be. But again, just going back to my artist true self, artists usually work alone. They're very comfortable, Mm. you know, writers and painters. And
0: I I like that myself. I mean, would you consider yourself an introvert?
1: I would say I was pretty introverted. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very happy having a very quiet lifestyle.
0: Yeah. In 1994, you guys made a decision to leave Maine and to relocate to North Carolina. Why? I mean, you're such a Maine person and it was such a Maine kind of product, what what prompted the move?
1: The location was very difficult working in the extreme northeast corner of the country. Mm. Getting more centralized was important for bringing raw materials in and getting finished goods out. So North Carolina was much better situated in terms of being halfway between Maine and Florida. And a direct shot out to the west coast on I-40. Hmm. There were other cosmetic companies in the area. Hmm. Revlon was about 15 miles away. The Body Shop was about 30 or 40 miles away. And there were a lot of pharmaceutical companies that use a lot of the same glass jars and caps and that sort of thing. Hmm. So our expenses went way down. We were able to hire people who had experience in that industry to come in and help ramp up production and computerize our office um, billings. Um, there were just a lot more people down there that were trained to do those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, and, and so you have this new location and then presumably you have to buy equipment and, and supplies and, and you're like running a factory.
1: Yeah, you know, it certainly wasn't a very sophisticated operation and it wasn't a state-of-the-art factory, right? but it was doable. We used a lot of used equipment. We were making one of our products in a big mixer that Duke had in its cafeteria for mashed potatoes. And uh, we we had a bath salt that we were making in a cement mixer. So, you know, we had hobbled it together.
0: So in the mid-90s, because I don't remember Burt's Bees in the mid-90s, right? Where would you have seen a Burt's Bees you know, lip balm or lotion or soap?
1: You would have found it in a independent gift shop. Little small gift shops dotted all over the country. And were you marketing? We were doing a kind of a grassroots marketing. We would make little sample products, and we were giving those away to people. We also had catalogs that were... Almost like a current-day blog. It would huh. be our products, but it would also talk a little bit about the company. And I told stories about Bert and his dog.
0: Hmm. When did you design that like, now-iconic logo of Bert's face on the packaging? Was that there from the beginning?
1: We had a great artist. He uh, lives up here in Maine, and he did a woodcut portrait of Bert. And we started putting that on the package a few years into the program. And that was a very conscious decision to yeah. use Bert's face because I was, I guess, a little resentful huh. of the way women were used ah. to market products. And I saw some of the big cosmetics lines really exploiting. The image of women, yeah. So it was important for me not to follow that
0: lead. It's so interesting because I would have thought that you would have put Bert's face on there because you know of the authenticity of this guy who was really the real deal. He was a beekeeper and a hermit, and you know the consumer was connecting with this authenticity. Like that's why I would have thought you would put his face on it. But it was it was about sexism.
1: Yeah, I think that it you know it had to do with authenticity and and Bert. But it also had to do with gender exploitation that the beauty products were, I think they were known for. Yeah. You know, and as a woman who could never measure up (laughs) to this glamorous image that one found in mainstream cosmetics and beauty products that, you know, I felt like I'm not, I don't want to do that to women. Hmm. So we're going to put a picture of a guy that everybody is going to feel <laughs> more beautiful than
0: yeah, so all right, so you guys are in North Carolina, you're running this company, it's a late nineties nineteen ninety nine bird exits you you buy him out when you incorporated, you had two thirds, he had a third, you buy him out, and he kind of retires,
1: yeah, although he I think enjoyed going out on the road and being Burt. Yeah. And signing T-shirts and... and Kind of being the mascot. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When he sort of was out of the picture, what was your personal relationship with him? Damaged? Were you not getting along from your perspective?
1: Yeah. That was pretty much what it was. Our relationship had gone south.
0: And... What happened, if you don't mind?
1: Well, it was sort of a personal transgression that was very hurtful to me hmm. and it kind of popped the bubble in a way i took a lot of inspiration from bert and his lifestyle and his authenticity and his independence and i found him to be quite admirable yeah so after the breakup i lost a lot of inspiration
0: hmm. he he had disappointed you basically
1: yeah yeah um, you know, I think that I was starting to feel like it was time to wind this thing up.
0: Yeah. So he's sort of he's kind of out of out of the day to day running, but really had been for a long time. Yep. Meantime, you were really, if this were a movie, Roxanne, this would be the point in the movie where like you would just go through the you know year be ninety nine thirteen point eight million two thousand thirty million <laughs> two thousand one sixty million. <laughs> And you'd have the music, and you'd have these guys counting big (laughs) stacks of cash, and you know, smoking cigars. Uh, But it is phenomenal. Like, how do you go from thirty million to sixty million in one year? Was it just phenomenal salespeople? Was it luck? What was going on? Well, it was
1: scalable. Hmm. Every every part of it was scalable. Once we automated filling, you could just
0: make more product. Yeah. Just turn it to eleven.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It was fabulous.
0: And just more and more stores were asking for these products?
1: Yep. We spent a lot of time focused on the consumer. Huh. So they would try the product, then they would want to go to the store and get a full-size product, and they would ask for it. And mm. if a customer asked for a product, that's a great sign. Yeah, And if your store ran out, the customer came back for more, it wasn't there, they would ask hey where's the birds bees so that kind of a pulling strategy from the from the consumer really helped a lot with growth and there was a tipping point mm. where it seemed that everybody knew about it yeah you know it went from nobody knowing about it to everybody knowing about it and i'm not exactly sure what that tipping point was but it took on a life of its own
0: you sell 80% of your shares of the company in 2003 to um, an investment firm. Not clear how much money, but a lot of money in the tens of millions of dollars. Was there something uh, unsettling about all of a sudden coming into, you know, more money than you could ever have imagined?
1: Uh, Not really, no. I wasn't unsettled by it. I was thinking about the exit strategy very Hmm. early on. Hmm.
0: Is that because you just didn't want to deal with the hassle of running a company anymore?
1: Yeah. It was something that became somewhat routine after a while. Yeah. Going to big box and drugstore chains didn't seem very exciting or creative to me, but it was clearly the next step. Hmm. So I felt like it was time to to turn it over to the professionals and I just felt very constrained. I yeah. felt very disconnected from what originally was an inspiration for me.
0: I imagine. So you go. You're gone. You're At this point, 2003, you really leave the company. Mm-hmm. Y- you became very wealthy from this tiny little bee company that you just like started accidentally. I mean it's pretty <laughs> remarkable, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't live too
1: differently. I, I have a more freedom now than yeah. I did when I had no money. But in a certain sense, I had a lot of freedom then also because I had nothing to lose. Yeah, That whole theme of freedom is important to me, always has been.
0: Meantime, you were really starting to become passionate about conserving and preserving land starting in Maine. Mm-hmm. And yep. you have given away a huge amount of your money by buying land in Maine and all over the country and giving it to the federal government, to Maine, and other state agencies to develop parks.
1: Yep. I had been living on the land up there for years, so I knew it. And with most beauty care companies, a lot of money that they generate goes into advertising. Yeah, I've heard even that $0.25 of every dollar goes into advertising. So we didn't have that expense because we weren't advertising. Guerrilla marketing and and grassroots marketing is not very expensive. And we had put all the money we needed to into growing the business. It still had excess cash. And I felt like we needed to find a very solid investment. And so, land seemed to be rock solid to me.
0: Yeah, but and President Obama named a new national monument in Maine, largely around that land that you you donated to the National Park Service.
1: Mm-hmm. Katahdin Woods and Waters. Katahdin yeah. is our mountain in Maine.
0: Um, in 2015, Bert Shevitz passed away. He was 80. A, a remarkable guy, a really fascinating person. There was a film about him. Um, Which was really interesting. And that was a point where he said something that probably was a little bit hurtful. He said, I never want to see her again. But have you kind of made peace with him and and his memory and your relationship? Oh, yeah, I have. I was in love with Bert. Yeah.
1: And we went through a lot of changes together. Had this child, Bert's bees, together. Raised it up. Off it went. I still feel very, very close to Bert. I think about him a lot. He was quite an
0: inspiration
1: to me, a muse.
0: Yeah. Did you have a chance to talk to Bert before he died?
1: In a certain way, yes. I was about to visit him, and my girlfriend went up to visit him the afternoon before I was planning to go. Hmm. And um, she called me to let me know that she didn't think he was going to last much longer. So we sort of had a phone yeah. uh, correspondence, and he did actually pass away later that day, so I did miss seeing him in person. But I just remember him, you know, at his prime.
0: Yeah. Um, some people have criticized you because they say, well, you got most of the money out of the company, and Bert, you know, he didn't get as much. What's your feeling about th- about that criticism?
1: I feel that I was the more responsible party for Mm -hmm. managing wealth. I could do the right thing with it. Um, And I don't know whether Bert would have really used it very productively. Hmm. He came from a family that had some wealth, and he chose not to use it. Right. He didn't do anything to help the community with the wealth that he did have and i felt like that was something that i could do and have been doing
0: do you plan to give away most of your wealth before you mm-hmm. die mhm mhm that's hard that's a lot of work isn't it figuring out where to where should go and dealing with all the incoming pitches and all the people who want some of your money i mean is it does it ever get tiresome
1: well i have um, both of my children each are working So they have responsibility for distributing funds every year to grantees according to the mission that makes sense to them. So I do have help, and I'm pretty spontaneous about the way I distribute grants. I don't have a real formal system. Hmm. I just, you know, either it rings true to me or it doesn't.
0: When you see Burt's Bees today, it's owned by Clorox, eventually purchased by Clorox for almost a billion dollars in 2007, which is unbelievable. You see it everywhere. It's at CVS. It's at Walmart. It's 7-Eleven. It, do you beam with pride? Is it, is it wonderful to see that?
1: I don't pay that much attention hmm. to it, I guess. Hmm. you know. I mean I certainly notice it when I'm at Whole Foods and I walk by the Burt's Bees display. It's huge. It always catches my yeah. eye. But I think – I've let it go, you know, yeah. in many ways. I just – it's something apart from me now.
0: So a question I ask everybody who's been on the show, Roxanne, I'm going to ask you, which is how much of, of your story and, and the success of this do you think is because of your skill and your intelligence and your hard work? And how much of it because of just luck?
1: Well, I was born on July 11th, which is 7 huh. So I f- have felt lucky for a long time. I mean, you certainly have to work hard, but when I look back at some of the critical events that were part of the destiny of this adventure, I certainly couldn't have pulled those off. That had to be luck or divine intervention, and there's been so many of those. And the right people came to me at the right time. So that has got to be luck.
0: That's Roxanne Quimby, co-founder of Burt's Bees. Do you, do you use any of the products?
1: Well, the one product that I was using has been discontinued, oh. so...
0: I just got some lip and balm. And I that's use great. the lip balm. Yeah, lip balm's I great. I like that balm. mint. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, that's your recipe, right? I hope so. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to write to us, our email address is hibt at npr.org. To find us on Twitter, it's at how I built This or at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, it's at how I built This NPR or at Guy.raz. This episode was produced by J.C. Howard with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. It was edited by Jeff Rogers with research help from Noor Kudsi. Our production staff includes Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, James Delahousie, Julia Carney, Elaine Coates, Farah Safari, Liz Metzger, and Annalise Ober. Our intern is Harrison B.J. Choi, and Jeff Rogers is our executive producer. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR.